Chapter 14 of Essays in Experimental Logic. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Henry. Essays in Experimental Logic by John Dewey. The Logic of Judgments of Practice. Judgments of Value 3, 4, and 5. Judgments of Value. 3. From what has been said, it immediately follows, of course, that a determinate value is instituted as a decisive factor with respect to what is to be done. Wherever a determinate good exists, there is an adequate stimulus to action, and no judgment of what is to be done or of the value of an object is called for. It is frequently assumed, however, that valuation is a process of applying some fixed or determinate value to the various competing goods of a situation. That valuation implies a prior standard of value and consists in comparing various goods with the standard as the supreme value. This assumption requires examination. If it is sound, it deprives the position which has been taken of any validity for it renders the judgment of what to do a matter of applying a value existing ready-made, instead of making, as we have done, the valuation a determination within the practical judgment. The argument would run this way. Every practical judgment depends upon a judgment of the value of the end to be attained. This end may be such only approximately, but that implies something else judged to be good, and so logically till we have arrived at the judgment of a supreme good, a final end or summum bonum. If this statement correctly describes the state of the case, there can be no doubt that a practical judgment depends upon a prior recognition of value. Consequently, the hypothesis upon which we have been proceeding reverses the actual facts. The first thing, by way of critical comment, is to point out the ambiguity in the term end. I should like to fall back upon what was said earlier about the thoroughly reciprocal character of means and end in the practical judgment. If this be admitted, it is also admitted that only by a judgment of means, things having value in the carrying of an indeterminate situation to a completion, is the end determinately made out in judgment. But I fear I cannot count upon this as granted. So I will point out that end may mean either the de facto limit to judgment, which by definition does not enter into judgment at all, or it may mean the last and completing object of judgment, the conception of that object in which a transitive, incompletely given situation would come to rest. Of end in the first sense, it is to be said that it is not a value at all. Of end in the second sense, that it is identical with a finale of the kind we have just been discussing, or that it is determined in judgment, not a value given by which to control the judgment. It may be asserted that in the illustration used, some typical suit of clothes is the value which affords the standard of valuation of all the suits which are offered to the buyer. 
that he passes judgment on their value as compared with the standard suit as an end and supreme value. This statement brings out the ambiguity just referred to. The need of something to wear is the stimulus to the judgment of the value of suits offered, and possession of a suit puts an end to judgment. It is an end of judgment in the objective, not in the possessive sense of the preposition of. It is an end not in the sense of aim, but in the sense of a terminating limit. When possession begins, judgment has already ceased. And if argument ad verucundium has any weight, I may point out that this is a doctrine of Aristotle when he says we never deliberate about ends, but only about means. That is to say, in all deliberation, or practical judgment or inquiry, there is always something outside of judgment which fixes its beginning and end or terminus. And I would add that, according to Aristotle, deliberation always ceases when we have come to the first link in the chain of causes which is last in the order of discovery. And this means when we have traced back the chain of causes, means, to ourselves. In other words, the last end in view is always that which operates as the direct or immediate means of setting our own powers in operation. The end in view upon which judgment of action settles down is simply the adequate or complete means to the doing of something. We do deliberate, however, about aims, about ends in view, a fact which shows their radically different nature from ends as limits to deliberation. The aim in the present instance is not the suit of clothes, but the getting of a proper suit. That is what is precisely estimated or evaluated, and I think I may claim to have shown that the determination of this aim is identical with the determination of the value of a suit through comparison of the values of cheapness, durability, style, pattern of different suits offered. Value is not determined by comparing various suits with an ideal model, but by comparing various suits with respect to cheapness, durability, adaptability with one another, involving, of course, reference also to length of purse, suits already possessed, etc., and other specific elements in the situation which demand that something be done. The purchaser may, of course, have settled upon something which serves as a model before he goes to buy, but that only means that his judging has been done beforehand. The model does not then function in judgment, but in his act as stimulus to immediate action. And there is a consideration here involved of the utmost importance as to the practical judgments of the moral type. The more completely the notion of the model is formed outside and irrespective of the specific conditions which the situation of action presents, the less intelligent is the act. Most men might have their ideals of the model changed somewhat in the face of the actual offering, even in the case of buying clothes. The man who is not accessible to such change in the case of moral situations has ceased to be a moral agent and become a reacting machine. In short, the standard evaluation is formed in the process of practical judgment or valuation. 
It is not something taken from outside and applied within it. Such application means there is no judgment. 4. Nothing has been said thus far about a standard. Yet the conception of a standard, or a measure, is so closely connected with valuation that its consideration affords a test of the conclusions reached. It must be admitted that the concepts of the nature of a standard pointed to by the course of the prior discussion is not in conformity with current conceptions. For the argument points to a standard which is determined within the process of valuation, not outside of it, and hence not capable of being employed ready-made, therefore, to settle the valuing process. To many persons, this will seem absurd to the point of self-contradiction. The prevailing conception, however, has been adopted without examination. It is a preconception. If accepted, it deprives judgment and knowledge of all significant import in connection with moral action. If the standard is already given, all that remains is its mechanical application to the case in hand, as one would apply a yard rule to dry goods. Genuine moral uncertainty is then impossible. Where it seems to exist, it is only a name for a moral unwillingness due to inherent viciousness to recognize and apply the rules already made and provided, or else for a moral corruption which has enfeebled man's power of moral apprehension. When the doctrine of standards prior to and independent of moral judgment is accompanied by these other doctrines of original sin and corruption, one must respect the thoroughgoing logic of the doctrine. Such is not, however, the case with the modern theories which make the same assumption of standards preceding instead of resulting from moral judgments, and which ignore the question of uncertainty and error in their apprehension. Such considerations do not, indeed, decide anything, but they may serve to get a more unprejudiced hearing for a hypothesis which runs counter to current theories, since it but formulates the trend of current practices in their increasing tendency to make the act of intelligence the central factor in morals. Let us, accordingly, consider the alternatives to regarding the standard of value as something evolved in the process of reflective valuation. How can such a standard be known? Either by an a priori method of intuition or by abstraction from prior cases. The latter conception throws us into the arms of hedonism, for the hedonistic theory of the standard of value derives its logical efficiency from the consideration that the notion of a prior and fixed standard, one which is not determined within the situation by reflection, forces us back upon antecedent, irreducible pleasures and pains which alone are values definite and certain enough to supply standards. They alone are simple enough to be independent and ultimate. The apparently common-sense alternative would be to take the value of prior situations in toto, say, the value of an act of kindness to a sufferer. But any such good is a function of the total unanalyzed situation. It has, consequently, no application to a new situation unless the new exactly repeats the old one.
Only when the good is resolved into simple and unalterable units in terms of which old situations can be equated to new ones on the basis of the number of units contained can an unambiguous standard be found. The logic is unimpeachable and points to irreducible pleasures and pains as the standard of valuation. The difficulty is not in the logic, but in empirical facts, facts which verify our prior contention, conceding, for the sake of argument, that there are definite existences, such as are called pleasures and pains. They are not value objects, but are only things to be valued. Exactly the same pleasure or pain as an existence has different values at different times according to the way in which it is judged. What is the value of the pleasure of eating the lobster as compared with the pains of indigestion? The rule tells us, of course, to break up the pleasure and pain into elementary units and count. Such Ultimate simple units seem, however, to be about as much within the reach of ordinary knowledge as atoms or electrons are within the grasp of the man of the street. Their resemblance to the ultimate neutral units which analytic psychologists have postulated as a methodological necessity is evident, since the value of even such a definite entity as a toothache varies according to the organization constructed and presented in reflection, it is clear that ordinary empirical pleasures and pains are highly complex. This difficulty, however, may be waived. We may even waive the fact that a theory which set out to be ultra-empirical is now enmeshed in the need for making empirical facts meet dialectical requirements. Another difficulty is too insuperable to be waived. In any case, the quantity of elementary existences which constitutes the criterion of measurement is dependent upon the very judgment which is assumed to be regulated by it. The standard of valuation is the units which will result from an act. They are future consequences. Now, the character of the agent judging is one of the conditions of the production of these consequences. A callous person not only will not foresee certain consequences and will not be able to give them proper weight, but he does not afford the same condition of their occurrence which is constituted by a sensitive man. It is quite possible to employ judgment so as to produce acts which will increase this organic callousness. The analytic conception of the moral criterion provides, logically, for deliberate blunting of susceptibilities. If the matter at issue is simply one of number of units of pleasure over pain, arrange matters so that certain pains will not, as matter of fact, be felt. While this result may be achieved by manipulation of extra-organic conditions, it may also be affected by rendering the organism insensitive. Persistence in a course which in the short run yields uneasiness and sympathetic pains will in the long run eliminate these pains and leave a net pleasure balance. This is a time-honored criticism of hedonism. My present concern with it is purely logical. It shows that the attempt to bring over from past objects the elements of a standard for valuing 
future consequences is a hopeless one. The express object of evaluation judgment is to release factors which, being new, cannot be measured on the basis of the past alone. This discussion of the analytic logic as applied in morals would, however, probably not be worthwhile did it not serve to throw into relief the significance of any appeal to fulfillment of a system or organization as the moral good, the standard. Such an appeal, if it is wary, is an appeal to the present situation as undergoing that reorganization that will confer upon it the unification which it lacks, to organization as something to be brought about, to be made. And it is clear that this appeal meets all the specifications of judgments of practice as they have been described. The organization which is to be fulfilled through action is an organization which, at the time of judging, is present in conception, in idea, in, that is, reflective inquiry as a phase of reorganizing activity. And since its presence in conception is both a condition of the organization aimed at and a function of the adequacy of the reflective inquiry, it is evident that there is here a confirmation of our statement that the practical judgment is a judgment of what and how to judge as an integral part of the completion of an incomplete temporal situation. More specifically, it also appears that the standard is a rule for conducting inquiry to its completion. It is a counsel to make examination of the operative factors complete a warning against suppressing recognition of any of them. However a man may impose upon himself or upon others, a man's real measure of value is exhibited in what he does, not in what he consciously thinks or says. For the doing is the actual choice. It is the completed reflection. It is comparatively easy at the present time in moral theory to slam both hedonism and a prioriism. It is not so easy to see the logical implications of the alternative to them. The conception of an organization of interests or tendencies is often treated as if it were a conception which is definite in subject matter as well as clear-cut in form. It is taken not as a rule for procedure in inquiry, a direction and a warning, which it is, but as something all of whose constituents are already given for knowledge, even though not given in fact. The act of fulfilling or realizing must then be treated as devoid of intellectual import. It is a mere doing, not a learning and a testing. But how can a situation which is incomplete, in fact, be completely known until it is complete? Short of the fulfillment of a conceived organization, how can the conception of the proposed organization be anything more than a working hypothesis, a method of treating the given elements in order to see what happens? Does not every notion which implies the possibility of an apprehension of knowledge of the end to be reached also imply either an a priori revelation of the nature of that end 
or else that organization is nothing but a whole composed of elementary parts already given the logic of hedonism. The logic of subsumption in the physical sciences meant that a given state of things could be compared with a ready-made concept as a model, the phenomena of the heavens with the implication of, say, the circle. The methods of experimental science broke down this motion. They substituted for an alleged regulative model a formula which was the integrated function of the particular phenomena themselves, a formula to be used as a method of further observations and experiments and thereby tested and developed. The unwillingness to believe that, in a similar fashion, moral standards or models can be trusted to develop out of the specific situations of action shows how little the general logical force of the method of science has been grasped. Physical knowledge did not, as a matter of fact, advance till the dogma of models or forms as standards of knowledge had been ousted, yet we hang tenaciously to a like doctrine in morals for fear of moral chaos. It once seemed to be impossible that the disordered phenomena of perception could generate a knowledge of law and order. It was supposed that independent principles of order must be supplied and the phenomena measured by approach to or deviation from the fixed models. The ordinary conception of a standard in practical affairs is a precise analogue. Physical knowledge started on a secure career when men had courage to start from the irregular scene and to treat the suggestions to which it gave rise as methods for instituting new observations and experiences, acting upon the suggested conceptions, analyzed, extended, and ordered phenomena, and thus made improved conceptions, methods of inquiry, possible. It is reasonable to believe that what holds moral knowledge back is, above all, the conception that there are standards of good given to knowledge apart from the work of reflection in constructing methods of action. As the bringer of bad news gets a bad name being made to share in the production of the evil which he reports, so honest acknowledgment of the uncertainty of the moral situation and of the hypothetical character of all rules of moral mensuration prior to acting upon them is treated as if it originated the uncertainty and created the skepticism. It may be contended, however, that all this does not justify the earlier statement that the limiting situation which occasions and cuts off judgment is not itself a value. Why, it will be asked, does a man buy a suit of clothes unless that is a value, or at least approximate means to a further value. The answer is short and simple, because he has to, because the situation in which he lives demands it. The answer probably seems too summary, but it may suggest that while a man lives, he never is called upon to judge whether he shall act, but simply how he shall act. A decision not to act is a decision to act in a certain way. It is never a judgment not to act, unqualifiedly. It is a judgment to do something else, to wait, for example. A judgment that the best thing to do is to retire from active life, 
to become a Simon Stylites is a judgment to act in a certain way, conditioned upon the necessity that, irrespective of judging, a man will have to act somehow anyway. A decision to commit suicide is not a decision to be dead. It is a decision to perform a certain act. The act may depend upon reaching the conclusion that life is not worth living. But as a judgment, this is a conclusion to act in a way to terminate the possibility of further situations requiring judgment and action. And it does not imply that a judgment about life as a supreme value and standard underlies all judgments as to how to live. More specifically, it is not a judgment upon the value of life per se, but a judgment that one does not find at hand the specific means of making life worthwhile. As an act to be done, it falls within and assumes life. As a judgment upon the value of life, by definition, it evades the issue. No one ever influenced a person considering committing suicide by arguments concerning the value of life, but only by suggesting or supplying conditions and means which make life worth living. In other words, by furnishing direct stimuli to living. However, I fear that all this argument may only obscure a point obvious without argument, namely that all deliberation upon what to do is concerned with the completion and determination of a situation in some respect incomplete and so indeterminate. Every such situation is specific. It is not merely incomplete. The incompleteness is of a specific situation. Hence, the situation sets limits to the reflective process. What is judged has reference to it, and that which limits never is judged in the particular situation in which it is limiting. Now we have in ordinary speech a word which expresses the nature of the conditions which limit the judgments of value. It is the word invaluable. The word does not mean something of supreme value as compared with other things any more than it means something of zero value. It means something out of the scope of valuation, something out of the range of judgment. Whatever in the situation at hand is not and cannot be any part of the subject matter of judgment and which yet instigates and cuts short the judgment. It means, in short, that judgment at some point runs against the brute act of holding something dear as its limit. 5. The statement that values are determined in the process of judgment of what to do, that is, in situations where preference depends upon reflection upon the conditions and possibilities of a situation requiring action, will be met by the objection that our practical deliberations usually assume precedent, specific values, and also a certain order or grade among them. There is a sense in which I am not concerned to deny this. Our deliberate choices go on in situations more or less like those in which we have previously chosen. When deliberation has reached a valuation, and action has confirmed or verified the conclusion, 
the result remains. Situations overlap. The M, which is judged better than N in one situation, is found worse than L in another, and so on. Thus, a certain order of precedence is established. And we have to broaden the field to cover the habitual order of reflective preferences in the community to which we belong. The value-eds or valuables thus constituted present themselves as facts in subsequent situations. Moreover, by the same kind of operation, the dominating objects of past valuations present themselves as standardized values. But we have to note that such value standards are only presumptive. Their status depends, on one hand, upon the extent in which the present situation is like the past. In a progressive or rapidly altering social life, the presumption of identical present value is weakened. And while it would be foolish not to avail oneself of the assistance in present valuations of the valuables established in other situations, we have to remember that habit operates to make us overlook differences and presume identity where it does not exist, to the misleading of judgment. On the other hand, the contributory worth of past determinations of value is dependent dependent upon the extent in which they were critically made, especially upon the extent in which the consequences brought about through acting upon them have been carefully noted. In other words, the presumptive force of a past value in present judgment depends upon the pains taken with its verification. In any case, so far as judgment takes place, instead of the reminiscence of a prior good operating as a direct stimulus to present action, all valuation is in some degree a revaluation. Nietzsche would probably not have made so much of a sensation, but he would have been within the limits of wisdom if he had confined himself to the assertion that all judgment in the degree in which it is critically intelligent, is a transvaluation of prior values. I cannot escape recognition that any allusion to modification or transformation of an object through judgment arouses partisan suspicion and hostility. To many, it appears to be a survival of an idealistic epistemology. But I see only three alternatives. Either there are no practical judgments, as judgments they are wholly illusory, or the future is bound to be but a repetition of the past or a reproduction of something eternally existent in some transcendent realm, which is the same thing logically, or the object of a practical judgment is some change, some alteration, to be brought about in the given, the nature of the change, depending upon the judgment and yet constituting its subject matter. Unless the epistemological realist accepts one of the two first alternatives, he seems bound in accepting the third to admit not merely that practical judgments make a difference in things as an after-effect, this he seems ready enough to admit, 
but that the import and validity of judgments is a matter of the difference thus made. One may, of course, hold that this is just what marks the distinction of the practical judgment from the scientific judgment. But one who admits this fact as respect to practical judgment can no longer claim that it is fatal to the very idea of judgment to suppose that its proper object is some difference to be brought about in things, and that the truth of the judgment is constituted by the differences in consequences actually made. And a logical realist who takes seriously the notion that moral good is a fulfillment of an organization or integration must admit that any proposition about such an object is prospective, for it is something to be attained through action, and that the proposition is made for the sake of furthering the fulfillment. Let one start at this point and carry back the conception into a consideration of other kinds of propositions, and one will have, I think, the readiest means of apprehending the intent of the theory that all propositions are but the propoundings of possible knowledge, not knowledge itself. For unless one marks off the judgment of good from other judgment by means of an arbitrary division of the organism from the environment or of the subjective from the objective, no ground for any sharp line of division in the propositional continuum will appear. But to obviate misunderstanding, this does not mean that some psychic state or act makes the difference in things. In the first place, the subject matter of the judgment is a change to be brought about, and in the second place, this subject matter does not become an object until the judgment has issued in act. It is the act which makes the difference, but nevertheless the act is but the complete object of judgment, and the judgment is complete as a judgment only in the act. The anti-pragmatists have been asked, notably by Professor A. W. Moore, how they sharply distinguish between judgment, or knowledge, and act, and yet freely admit and insist that knowledge makes a difference in action and hence in existence. This is the crux of the whole matter, and it is a logical question. It is not a query, as it seems to have been considered, as to how the mental can influence a physical thing like action, a variant of the old question of how the mind affects the body. On the contrary, the implication is that the relation of knowledge to action becomes a problem of the action of a mental or logical entity upon a physical one only when the logical import of judgment has been misconceived. The positive contention is that the realm of logical propositions presents in a realm of possibility the specific rearrangement of things which overt action presents in actuality. Hence, the passage of a proposition into action is not a miracle, but the realization of its own character, its own meaning as logical. I do not profess, of course, to have shown that such is the case for 
all propositions, that is a matter which I have not discussed. But in showing the tenability of the hypothesis that practical judgments are of that nature, I have at least ruled out any purely dialectic proof that the nature of knowledge as such forbids entertaining the hypothesis that the import, indirect if not direct, of all logical propositions is some difference to be brought about. The road is at least cleared for a more unprejudiced consideration of this hypothesis on its own merits. End of section 17. Recording by Jennifer Henry.